When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Blair Braverman, author of the novel Small Game. For me, like there's a very big difference between going out like fully clothed and with equipment and going out with nothing and having to make sort of like you know, primitive tools from scratch. It was a very different skill set for me. We'll be back with Blair Braverman after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there's so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you, but it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love, but all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with nonfiction and fiction writer Blair Braverman. She is an adventurer and long-distance sled dog racer, columnist, and contributing editor for Outside Magazine, and a contributor to the New York Times, This American Life, Vogue, and many other venues. Her nonfiction books include Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube and Dogs on the Trail. She lives in northern Wisconsin with her husband, Quince Mountain, and their team of sled dogs. Her debut novel is called Small Game and tells the story of a group of four strangers who have been cast in a reality show called Civilization. The goal is to survive in the woods living off the land for six weeks and claim a handsome payout. The main character, Mara, was working at a survival school before she was cast in the show and she has both learned and natural instincts for surviving in the wild. But once the contestants meet, Group dynamics come into play as to how they will survive not just the wilderness, but one another. Partway through the grueling challenge, however, something totally unexpected and unprecedented happens, and the group's survival becomes more than a Hollywood contest for public consumption. We began the interview with Blair Braverman first sharing about her origins as a writer. I've always been a writer. I don't know. I, you know, from the time I was little, I kept journals obsessively. And then I, in college, I started writing very seriously um, and studying writing seriously. And um, I've always loved narrative nonfiction. So sometimes that's memoir. Sometimes that's journalism, using narrative techniques to make sense of the world and in all of its complete messiness. And so that's where my familiarity really lies and so, so this book, Small Game, was my first novel. It was really exciting to turn those techniques on, on fiction for the first time. And what made you want to do that? I really wanted to know what would happen if there was a reality show, um, a survival reality show that turned into a real survival situation. I had this idea and I was obsessed with it. And um you know, as a nonfiction writer, I'd love if I could like do that experiment and write it as nonfiction, but I can't, it would be highly unethical. And I realized that if I wanted to know what would happen, I'm a writer, I guess I better like see, see what happens on the page. That's how I've always made sense of things. But I just had this burning desire to know what would happen in a very specific situation. And, and from there, um, to answer my own questions. So what was the time period between your initial thought, like this obsessive idea about what if a survivor show turned real, the sort of the time frame from that to like you writing your last sentence? Oh, writing my last sentence. It was pretty short because I had the idea when I was on a survival show, which was in 2018, but it aired in 2019. And then I started writing the book 
in January of 2020 during like peak quarantine. Wait, no, 2021? 2021, just last winter, I wrote the first draft by March, you know, and then revised for another year, of course. But um, so maybe it was two or three years from start to finish, which felt felt very fast for me. Most of my books have taken longer than that. So this this idea that you had, you were curious about what would happen. So you yeah. wrote you wrote out your ideas is what happened in the book, what you thought would happen? Like how many surprises did you have in the writing process from this initial seed of an idea and a curiosity to what played out in your plot? Oh, I, I was constantly surprised by the characters. And um, and again, fiction is new to me. So I'd love to, you know, hear, hear more experienced fiction writers weigh in. But um, I felt like I started with these characters and then I I followed them and I, I did not know how things were going to end. Um, and they surprised me multiple times over, but, but I was so curious about this shift from a artificial survival situation, uh, sort of a game where people are enacting survival, uh, into a real survival situation where people are really fighting for their lives and they don't have a choice in the matter anymore. And I was curious, uh, how different people would process having crossed that line, whether they would be in denial and how they how they would cope with that transition. And that was really the burning question for me. And, um, you know, and then everyone in the book coped a little differently. Well, tell me a little bit about your survival show. I, I vaguely remember this, but I don't know that many details. Um, if you tell me like what it was called, what it was like. Yeah, I was on a show called Naked and Afraid. Um, where you, you're left naked and presumably afraid in the wilderness for a couple of weeks. And um, I thought it was really fun. It was very uncomfortable, but it, it was a really positive experience for me. I was in South Africa um, and I had been, I was recruited for the show. And so I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I'm not, I'm not a survivalist really at at all for me like there's a very big difference between going out um like fully clothed and with equipment and going out with nothing and having to make sort of like you know primitive tools from scratch it was a very different skill set for me and um and I really enjoyed it I enjoyed studying that and practicing as I in the lead up to the show and then getting to use those skills while I was out there Um, but it was totally different from my everyday life as an outdoors person. Um, you know, I'm a long distance dog musher, so I use uh, a lot of equipment. I have a lot of equipment when I'm out there and, uh, yeah, it was just this very, uh, interesting experiment. And how much did the crew interfere or did you have your own camera? Oh, so, well, I did have my own camera so you could like talk to yourself, you know, you could like turn it on and, and monologue to yourself, keep a, keep a diary with the camera. But for the most part, there were, the crew did not interfere. They were there. They came in the morning and they left in the, usually later in the afternoon. And then at night they weren't there, but there were sort of static cameras around. And, um, they didn't really talk to us, you know, like we'd say hi when they arrived in the morning, but it wasn't like, you could have long conversations to distract yourself from the hunger. Yeah, it, I had a really great crew. I always felt like I was in good hands. And so when I was creating the show for this book, I was like, 
this needs to be very different. This needs to be, in order for things to go wrong, we need to see that this is a crew that's falling apart from the very beginning. This is not a responsible group. Uh, and so it was sort of exciting to get to invent like a total clusterfuck from the beginning. So on Naked and Afraid, was the first thing you wanted to do find food? I would say the first thing we wanted to do was find water. And then from there, create a shelter near the water. Because we were in an area with a ton of predators. We had lions, we had um, leopards, we had hyenas, we had elephants like coming through our camp regularly. And so we needed some, we, you know, piled a bunch of like thorny branches and a ring um, and built a fire inside of it and, and tried to keep that fire going almost all the time, especially at night. Um, and so those were the first two priorities. And then food was pretty far down the list. What about clothing? You know, it would have been nice, but there weren't a ton of materials there. I did want to protect my skin. So like one of the first things I did was find mud and, you know, trying different substances on my skin, like mud and ashes to see what would protect me from the sun. Um, and ashes ended up working best, but I don't think we ever ended up coming up with any sort of real clothing. Uh, you know, they're going to blur you out for TV, (laughs) but, um, it's sort of like you sort of people told me that I'd forget about being naked within a short period of time. And it, it was definitely true. (laughs) Like it, it was a really awkward first 10 minutes. And then after that, like it was so far down the list of priorities. So when you started crafting this novel um, mm-hmm. and you wanted it to be very different than your reality experience, you wanted a crew that was kind of devolving themselves and you had five people go out. Like, what did you start feeling like you were exploring in the characters' lives? I mean, the first question is, why would they do that? Why would they put themselves in a situation where they're going to be at best highly uncomfortable for many weeks, you know, hungry, covered in bug bites, um, sleeping on the ground. And secondary to that, there's the fact that they would be living very, very publicly. And that's something that, you know, everyone relates to differently. So, so I needed to understand why these people would put themselves in a quasi survival situation or a survival adjacent situation, and also why they would choose to be watched by a million people, have no privacy, have the stories of their lives shaped by this camera crew um, and that agency taken away. That was something I was really aware of um, on the show. And I I really love the edit. I loved my producer. Um, She was a former journalist, which made me really happy when I found out because I I knew she was going to bring a lot of integrity to to the way that she brought the story to the screen. But it's incredibly vulnerable to go into a situation where you know someone else is responsible for telling your story to the world. And it may not be a story that you even recognize, even though it's told about you. And and so I needed to know why the characters would put themselves in that position as well. Did you find the same thing when you were in your reality show about why people came? I wouldn't say I found the same thing, but it's it's something I thought about, of course. When you're out there and you're thinking people are going to be 
watching me. And as a writer, I mean, it was interesting to me because as a writer, I am so used to telling my own story for myself. And there's a lot of power in knowing that you can tell your story for yourself in a way that feels true, um, that I can capture my experience and I can relate it to people in a way um, that will give them hopefully the emotional response that that I have. And we will share that experience of the story together, if that makes sense. But other people aren't writers necessarily, so they wouldn't be giving up that power to someone else. It's a power that they never presume to have. So why did you go on their show? I got on, I went on the show um, because I was invited and I love an adventure. And I loved the idea of an adventure that someone else was going to set up for me. So at the time, uh, I was I was working on qualifying for the Iditarod at the time that I first, um, you know, was contacted and then started auditioning for the show. And I was spending all my time working toward this adventure that would only happen because I made it happen. And with such a tremendous amount of work, years and years and years of work to get to the starting line and and no one was going to make it happen for me. And so the idea that I could step into a sort of outdoor adventure, which I love, that someone else would have constructed entirely for me. All I had to do was show up and then it was going to be an interesting experience that was handed to me. And I didn't have to research it and I didn't have to like find a guide and I didn't have to figure out my plane tickets and I didn't have to like figure out a location. I didn't have to, I didn't have to train a team of dogs. Like I just had to show up and I get to have, uh, an interesting experience in the outdoors. And that seemed really, really cool to me. <laughs> like that was irresistible, especially at that moment in my life when I was working so hard toward the Iditarod and it was so much work every step of the way. The idea that someone else would do all the planning and I would get to have an adventure um, just seemed genuinely fun. And so for your characters, your main character who's in the story, um, we're kind of seeing it through her whole point of view is mm -hmm. named Mara. So Mara really goes to escape a relationship that she's just not interested in and for money. And Ashley, who becomes a love interest for her, really comes because she wanted to be famous. Bullfrog comes because he really wants to kind of reconnect with his daughter and like maybe prove that he's worthy of her. There's Kyle, yep. who's the Eagle Scout. He comes uh, to prove himself in a lot of different ways. Yeah, Kyle comes to prove himself. And then there's one that doesn't last. I think his name was James. And he um, leaves pretty soon after. So I think something that's really good for fiction, and I don't know if you've thought about this as you've written your whole, your first book, um, a really good thing for fiction is longing, is having characters who long. So you start mm -hmm. off putting these characters in a situation who are all coming from a place of longing. And I don't know if you well, identified it with those words, but curious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a good thing for fiction, but that's a good thing for any narrative. So when I'm writing narrative nonfiction, I'm, I'm thinking those same things. What is this character longing for? What do they need? Um, how are they going to get there and what's in their way? So the idea of presenting characters in certain ways, presenting their backstories, um, having them stand in their own way, sometimes stand in each other's way. Uh, all of that, all of those techniques are the same techniques that I use in my nonfiction. It's just uh, 
the details come from different places. So I, I absolutely was thinking about that from the beginning, because the first thing you're doing with the, with the reality show is you, you do your casting and, uh, you know, that was true for this book too. Who am I going to cast for this show? So what was it about Mara that you really, what you were drawn to? I mean, she grew up basically in a family where her parents seemed to be semi-normal, like they lived in the suburbs, she went to school, but they got more and more radicalized in terms of being really, I guess, afraid or circumspect of regular society and became kind of their own survivalists. I mean, not as much as her where they were really going out with nothing to kill their food, but they just retreated from society and didn't trust it. Yeah, they ra- they raised her basically as uh, apocalypse preppers from uh, not from when she was totally young, but from when she was about 10 years old on. And so I'm curious. And then she as she she got some agency when she got towards high school to be able to get away from the land that they lived on. And she ended up needing money and getting a job at a survivalist school. And she was really good at it. It just fit her. And so she would take other people out for a night or two to survive on their own. It was almost like something that wealthy people would do just to say Mm -hmm. that they did it. And she wasn't necessarily that way. Like she was like, I'd rather have a bed, but this was her income. And so it was seemed like a natural fit to her to be on the show. So what was really, because she is really the character we're in her head almost the whole time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not first person, but um, what, what about her, was so interesting to you to cast her as the main character. Ooh, yeah, actually the first draft was first person. <laughs> so it, it switched over. We really are in her head. Mara was raised by a family who wanted her to be prepared for the end of civilization. And because of that, she never learned how to live in civilization. She never learned how to live with other people. So she's going on this journey. And ironically, by going to this survival situation, she's going to learn how to survive with other people, which is something she's never really had to do before or had the opportunity to do. And she's angry and she's bitter and she doesn't think she has a lot of agency in her life. She ends up on the show because she's invited and it's the first time she's seen any sort of a way out. Um, You know, her, her job, her boyfriend, everything she's ended up with has been sort of whatever has been easiest to her because it's all she thinks she can handle. And I'm not like her very much. I'm I'm far more like Kyle, I think, who's a character who other characters find annoying. And I hope I'm not annoying in the same way, but I, I do relate to him quite a bit. But I think that at the point I wrote the first draft, which was sort of middle of that first pandemic winter, like pre-vaccine, um, I work from home, people are very quarantined. So I hadn't seen people in a long time. And there was a part of me that related to her fear and her isolation. It was a small part of me, but you can take that small part and and make it grow in these sort of stories and, and sort of tease it out into a whole person. That was a hard winter. And I put all of that into Mara, even though most of the time I am I am more like the other people, but I wanted to see how she was gonna get through things. She really has a strong voice in in the group of them that are together. And it's not necessarily because she 
worked as, as a survivalist. I mean, they all have their different personalities, but she, she had a sensibility, I think about her, about what they were doing. Like that was very, very grounded. Whereas not Mm -hmm. the rest, the rest of them might not have. And early on, um, she's talking to Kyle, who's more of the optimist. And he's saying, this is survival, you know, like we're here. The whole point is we're surviving. And she says, this isn't survival. And he says, look at us. Of course it is. And she says, it's a survival game. We're playing the game. It's not survival if you have a choice. So I marked this line because I thought it was so interesting about what you introduce the concept that's coming later, although we don't know when we open the book that the crew is going to disappear and that they really do have to survive. Mm -hmm. But it is such a question, like a philosophical question is like, are you surviving if maybe safety is one question away of asking for help? Right. Is it survival? Like what does survival mean? Does survival mean you're boiling your water and you're hunting for food um, but you have medical care right there. And you, if you get too hungry, you can leave. Or does survival mean you are on this sort of knife edge where you might or might not make it or you might or might not meet your needs at any given time and there actually isn't an escape route? Um, and I, I would say survival is the second. And that isn't necessarily something that has to be located in wilderness. Tell me more about that. Um, I, you know, if we, if we think of survival, cause I had to think what does survival actually mean? That was something I thought about a lot as I was, as I was writing this book and I don't have an objective definition, but I had to come up with a, a working definition for the purposes of, of this novel. And, um, if we think of survival as fighting to meet your basic needs and not knowing if you're going to meet them on a day-to-day basis, that's something that people encounter a lot. Um, in civilization, Uh, but it's something that we have assigned to wilderness. Like if someone says a survival show, we know that it's going to be people with like a knife in a forest. I mean, I think that's wrong. I think that's a narrative we've come up with to, you know, not have to face how close we all are to survival often, uh, particularly without social safety nets. You know, as we know, this country doesn't have that many of them. So did your thinking on what survival is, I mean, you said that you thought about it a lot before you wrote the book, but did your thinking evolve? Like, did you come out at the end with a more complex understanding of it? Or do you feel like the questions are still really huge? I think it's something that can always keep evolving. I think that I didn't have, I just always taken it for granted. I mean, I, uh, survival, I thought I knew what it meant. I thought, I mean, I I was never quite like Kyle. I always had a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding than him, I'd like to think. But if anything, writing this book has made me realize I don't have a clear definition and it's going to change and it's going to evolve and it it's different in different circumstances. So once these people all met, they had a crew and the crew was there to film them at times, but there were also different cameras in the trees. So... So in some ways, um, the crew manipulated them a little bit. Like in the beginning, they sort of suggested that they go on this trek up this mountain that two of them go on and they promise there's going to be berries and there aren't berries. And it's like really arduous and takes a lot of energy. I mean, when you're trying to survive in that brutal, like life or death, hunger, thirst way, you don't want to expend energy on things that aren't going to pay off. So we see Mm -hmm. that there's some manipulation from the very beginning. And why was that important for you to include? Because I 
think when people are in a situation like that, there's so much vulnerability in not knowing whether you can trust someone. And if you realize that the people who are solely responsible for your safety, um, I mean, these contestants were brought in blindfolded. They don't know where they are. Uh, they're dropped in the wilderness. They don't know how to get out, right? I mean, they're totally trusting that if they need medical care, if they need to go to a hospital, that this crew is going to uh, you know, rescue them. The vulnerability of realizing early on that they cannot fully trust the crew is, is very intense. I mean, narratively, that's interesting. And it also means that the characters are having to make hard decisions and hard judgments, um, even from those first couple days. And let's talk a little bit about the environment they were in, because I think it's reflective of where you live. It is. Yeah. It's based on, it's based on Northern Wisconsin and also the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is like an hour from our house. Yeah. They get dropped off in May. And, uh, it was really fun for me because I, I had written the first draft by the time May rolled around, uh, the year that I was, I was first writing it. Um, but I had left all these TKs, you know, for the natural environment. And, uh, then I started going, once I hit the period in the year when, these crew members were out in the forest. I started going out every single day with a notebook and taking notes on what changed day by day by day in, in the wilderness around me. And then it was really fun. That was one of the most fun parts of the writing was uh, working all those details into the story. So it would be accurate. Yeah. I got a real sense, like it was very dense with trees. It wasn't that mountainous, so they couldn't see that far. There were Mm -hmm. lakes so they could figure out how to maybe get fish, but there were also bears and other predators. So it was, it was a very dense environment where their world was very, very, very tiny. It was. And I, my first pick actually wasn't to put this book in my backyard. Um, I wanted to put it on like a desert Island um, because that's an environment that I've been fascinated by since I was a kid. And I've never spent time on any sort of like, you know, the classic like desert island stranded on a desert island. But I couldn't travel at the time I was working on the first draft. So it ended up being here in the Northwoods sort of by necessity, um, because I wasn't going to write it about an environment that I couldn't spend a lot of time in for accuracy. And uh, I ended up really, really loving having it here because it it brought me closer to to my own woods. I think one of the things that's so interesting about these character situations is that they are with the crew. They're just like one step away from all the luxuries of the world. And by luxuries, I mean, they lived in tents. They had guns, they had power bars, they had a way to heat their Mm -hmm. food. They had food, they had a way out. And so there's a really interesting dynamic between the individuals that are there it's really between the haves and the have nots and there's a power dynamic set up and you have some situations where some of the people on the show are testing the boundaries of, of what they're allowed to do and partake in as being survivalists and on the Mm -hmm. crew side where they bend the rules to allow people in. So curious about this element, this dynamic. I mean, I think the power dynamic goes both ways if you zoom out because on the one hand the crew has all the power when they're out in the wilderness and of course like the producer and whoever's going to edit the footage can portray the characters however they want to portray them basically 
at the same time, the survivalists are the stars. They're the, the quote unquote talent. Um, they're going to be the faces of this thing. And the crew are largely there for an hourly wage. Although the survivalists in this case are also largely there because they need money. But, um, but I think it's not quite that simple. And it's interesting to see when, when you have this sort of power dynamic that can shift back and forth. Um, people can really lean into the power they have and you, you see the crew exploiting that sometimes or, uh, you know, or trying to, to play favorites. A major plot point is that the crew disappears. They're gone. And so what mm-hmm. becomes this show that from that quote I was just reading of the conversation between Kyle and Mara and then that actually happening and them being out there facing like the real dangers with no safety net at all. That was your idea going into it. And it created such a compelling story from that moment on. And I'm wondering if your experience of writing that like changed for you as soon as the crew disappeared. Oh, uh, I don't think so. It does feel like it did feel like there's very much a sort of part one of the book and part two and part two is once the crew vanishes. And uh, however, the reality show lingers on because they don't know if this is a trick. They don't know if they're still being filmed, if this is, uh, just a, another twist on the show and viewers want to see what happens and how people respond if they think the crew is gone, um, which is totally a show I would watch because I'm also curious. Uh, but it it didn't feel, writing-wise, it felt very sequential to me. But um, But I do think of it as a before and after. Yeah, so I was asking you about the, it really was a page turner and how you, if you were aware of that and how you construct one, like when you think about story and craft. I would love to say that I tried to write a page turner and succeeded, but I don't, I mean, I had, that has been some of the the best feedback, the most exciting feedback I've gotten is a lot of people have said, I read it in one day or I read it in, you know, two sittings and I, I, couldn't sleep. And like that to me is a dream as a writer. Like I best up someone's sleep that that is fantastic. Um, cause writers have done that to me and it's, it's so exciting to be, um, to go on that journey and like get sucked into a story that intensely, but I didn't set out to write a thriller consciously. I did want it to be propulsive. I wanted there always to be something moving the reader forward. And so it's, it's been really wonderful to hear that that succeeded. So if you look at it in retrospect and someone asked you, well, I'm, I'm an up and coming writer or I want to write my first page turner. What did you learn that could help me? Would you have an answer? Yeah, definitely. I would say, um, you know, figure out where your tension lies, figure out where your plot points lie. Um, all of your conversations, all of your scenes should be driving things forward uh, and leave out the filler. The filler is not important. I I always start writing by writing the scenes that are most interesting and thrilling to me first. I write, like I'll start with fight scenes for a whole book. Well, I've never, I don't think I've ever written like a fist fight, but arguments, you know, fights between people, uh, hard conversations, hard decisions. Those to me are really interesting as a writer. And so I'll always write, uh, you know, a bear encounter, like all of those moments where you're on the edge of your seat, that 
those are exciting to me as a writer and that's what I want to write first. And then you figure out what that connective tissue is and what scenes you need in between that are also uh, moving things forward. And, and I write those next. And then everything else I just try to do in like a sense. Like if I'm like, okay, I have this scene and I have this scene and like not too much, like there's just logistics between them. I'm going to try to do those logistics in a sentence, half a sentence, a paragraph if I need to. Um, but if a scene is boring to you to write, it will be incredibly boring for readers to read. And if you ever feel like you're pushing yourself through a scene, like it's just not interesting as a writer, just delete the whole thing, summarize it in a sentence uh, and move on. It's okay. The reader will keep moving with you and they'll be onto something better. So I'm curious about the ending, not not to give away the ending, but what you did literary, like with craft, you know, you had this whole book, there was kind of a mystery involved in it and you ended it with a very long paragraph, maybe like almost a whole page that was mm-hmm. a flash forward. So you're, mm-hmm. you're summarizing, I mean, you have salient points but you you were kind of just summarizing the rest of their lives in a way <laughs> and and you said earlier the next couple years yeah the, you said earlier too that you you leave a lot out so i was curious about this craft choice in in creating your ending oh i'm trying to think about how to respond to this without giving away a complete spoiler i'm going to like speak in code so i don't ruin it for people who haven't read the book yet I felt that I could not write for, I felt that if I wrote past that point, I would unbalance the book, that I could not keep writing past this particular scene, but I wanted the readers to have answers past that particular scene. And so the flash forward became a glimpse into the future. And then we return to where we are and we end in the location where I felt that the book needed to end, but we've still gotten to see a little bit about what's happening next. Because you're trying to provide that sort of closure for some of those things, was that a really intense part to write because you had to pick the pieces that were most salient to put in there? No, it it felt very relaxing. I don't know if I can if I can explain why, but it at that point it just felt easy to write. So when you were done writing this, were you like, I want to write more fiction or were you like, get me back to journalism? Totally. I thought it was so fun. I thought it was very, very relaxing to write fiction and really fun um, and less stressful than writing nonfiction. And I love nonfiction and I'm going to write more nonfiction. And and it remains to be seen uh, whether my next you know, book length narrative is fiction or nonfiction, because I have a, a, a couple ideas uh, in the shoot, so to speak, and it could go either way, but I really loved writing fiction. I thought it was a blast. I thought it was really, really fun. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I have this on a screen because I could, I'm, I think I gave my hard copy away. I've gone through so many copies of this book, but the book is Sweet Heaven When I Die by Jeff Charlotte. It's a book of essays sort of loosely arranged around faith and how people grapple with faith, but that it's so much broader than that. And I wasn't sure what to read. Everything Jeff Charlotte writes is so beautiful. Um, So I thought I would just read the first paragraph of the whole book. And I didn't even know you're in Colorado. This is from an essay called Sweet Fuck All Colorado. 
When I was 18, I fell hard for the state of Colorado as embodied by a woman with long honey blonde hair and speckled green eyes who drank wine from a coffee mug and whiskey from the bottle. Her name was Molly Knott Chilson. That's how she said it when she'd been drinking. Molly Knott Chilson, all three names, the latter two, the marks of good family for those who knew Colorado, which I did not. We were freshmen at a college in the countryside of Western Massachusetts, as far as could be in the lower 48 from the Rocky Mountains and the ornery horses she'd grown up with, horses that charged out of chutes into rodeo arenas and ambled up into high saddleback passes where the trees are nothing but grunts of tortured bark and thick, sharp needles. Those were some of the things Molly Knott Chilson loved, horse flesh, rodeo dirt, and gnarled pine. Can you tell me more about why you chose that? I chose that because I could not choose a paragraph in this whole book. And I thought he picked one to start with it. I'm just going to go with that. But Jeff Charlotte's, he has so many gifts. Um, he is, he's an extraordinary journalist and I think he's particularly extraordinary. Or one of the things that I really, really admire is his ability to encapsulate character quickly, um, to give us portraits of people in a, in a very, very short space, um, and with tremendous beauty. And I, I feel like this is this is a glimpse of that. And if you like it at all, just keep reading his work. It'll suck you in. And um, there's a lot of it. It's all absolutely incredible. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you really liked? I'm going to read something that didn't change from the first draft. I think the whole book changed so much. Uh, and this paragraph stands out to me because I... I don't know if I changed a word from the first draft. So I'll, I'll go with the opposite of your question, if that's all right. All right, so, so this is just a paragraph. The only context you need is that Mara uh, is a teenager who's being raised by preppers and is sort of looking for work and trying to branch out a little bit uh, from her family. One of their neighbors was a mink rancher and Mara started going there instead, cleaning cages for 10 bucks an hour cash. The smell was awful and it stuck to her clothes. The mink were mean. Anyone who wants to save the mink, the rancher liked to say, you know they've never met one, these asshole sons of bitches, rolling his sleeves to show the scars. He was a sad man and Mara liked him. His wife had died of cancer three years before. He baked bread often and sent her home with warm loaves of sourdough or called her to the kitchen for a slice, toasted and soaked with butter. Once, sizing her up, he brought her to his wife's closet and told her to pick anything she wanted, that his wife would have liked to see her clothes used. Mara picked a thick sweater, hand-knit with a pattern that looked like eagles. She wore the sweater the next time she came by, thinking it might please him, but it seemed to make him sadder. After that, the rancher didn't invite her in as much. She still cleaned the cages, but now he left money under a rock outside. Do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah. Um, I just like that paragraph. <laughs> I wrote it for the book. It was one of the only things that I think didn't change at all from the first draft. And um, I like that it's a little world. We never meet the mink rancher again. Um, but we get, we glimpse this other story. It's like a, a window from this book into another life. Um, and then we move on. And uh, I, I feel fond of it. Also, a mink rancher said that to me once. Um, these asshole sons of bitches and rolled up his sleeves and showed me all his his mink scars. Uh, and I always thought that was striking. Where do you write? On my lap. 
I just write on my laptop in the living room or wherever I happen to be. I uh, travel a lot with the dogs and I just I just work on my computer, often in the common space of the house. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? My life has a natural kind of balance because I'm a a full-time professional dog sledder and a full-time professional writer. So I stare at a screen a lot and then I go out with the dogs. Um, and there, there isn't necessarily a lot of time left over after both of those things are done. Um, but they, they do balance each other really nicely because being with the dogs is very physical. You have to get out of your head. Um, you have to see the world and not use words for a little while. And then I can come back in and write again when I'm done. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I usually go quite a while before I show my work to anyone. I had a full second or third draft of the book this time before I showed it to anyone. I showed it um, to two friends, my friends, Lori and Sarah, and um, got their feedback. They, they're both brilliant readers and, and edited from there. I, show, I usually show it to my husband when it's almost done. And, uh, and I guess I, I, my agent was the next person I showed it to after those two friends. How have you dealt with rejection? It's just part of writing. I mean, look, I, there's many, many great writers, like truly brilliant writers whose work just doesn't do it for me. And I know that's true for everyone. There's, there's brilliant writers who, who I love, who people who I really respect are not that into. And I just think that's true for everyone's work. There's some people it's going to resonate with and some people it's not going to resonate with. And um, why would my work be any different? Um, I don't need it to resonate with everyone, but I, I do want it to resonate deeply with some people. And that's what really matters to me. And, and so rejection just means um, maybe you've landed with one of those people who isn't one of the exact people your work is going to speak to, or like, just as often or more often, it's like just a business decision. Like what has the magazine done recently? What's the publisher have space for? It's not personal. I don't, I really don't take it personal. And what is your favorite word? Oh, they warned me you were going to ask me this. And um, that's like asking what's my favorite dog. I don't think I can do it. I just, I just don't think I can. I thought so much. My favorite word is an M dash. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and for, for your really thoughtful questions. It's an honor to, to talk with someone who has such great questions and brings so much thought and insight to the work. So thank you. If you like today's show with Blair Braverman, author of the novel Small Game, check out my interview with Miriam Taves on her novel Women Talking. We discussed finding motivation when it seems to be elusive, living in collective communities, and options for escape from an insular community. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.